Welcome to the Be Kind Podcast with your host, Joe Kirkner, presented by the Animal Advocates of South Central Pennsylvania. Welcome, everybody, to the Be Kind Podcast. My name is Joe, and I'm with the Animal Advocates of South Central PA, and this podcast is part of their mission to create a more compassionate world for all living creatures, whether they just got done playing disc golf on an afternoon or they just got done biking over to Joe's house. All animals deserve to be loved, and they all should be loved, which is why we have this podcast, and which is why I have the honor of being joined by John today, who actually just biked here, coincidentally. Yep. And I just finished playing disc golf, so that's where that came from. And then we're also joined by Rissa Miller, who is a writer and artist who has a lot of awesome things going on. I'm so excited to hear what she has to say about her work. So hi, Rissa. Hi, Joe. Hi, John. It's hey. exciting to be here. <laughs> and Great to have you. Yeah, it's exciting to have you on. Would you mind telling the listeners a little bit about what takes up most of your time, what gives you really fired up, and your vegan journey? <laughs> okay. What takes up most of my time? Um, I am the senior editor for the Vegetarian Journal. It is a magazine run by a nonprofit called the Vegetarian Resource Group based in Baltimore, Maryland. I have been working there since May of 2018. And basically, I am responsible for a lot of the workings of the magazine itself. Um, I do the layout and design. I do most of the photography. I assign stories. I come up with ideas. And I meet a lot of deadlines. <laughs> the magazine distributes um, nationally mostly, but a little bit internationally. And um, even though it's called Vegetarian Journal, that was a more accessible word back in 1982 when they started it. The magazine has been and still is 100% about vegan living. And can you tell us a little bit about your vegan journey and how you found yourself in this very unique, exciting position? Of course. It'd be a pleasure. So... I'm going to rewind a lot of years. Um, <laughs> I wanted to be a vegetarian in high school. I was an avid animal lover. I really felt weird about eating animals. And I also was an, a weird, arty kid in high school, and people already didn't accept me. So I didn't want to further make myself stand out as different or other by becoming a vegetarian. Because there were vegetarians in my school, a couple of girls who were sort of, you know, out as vegetarians. And people weren't super great about that. I remember boys throwing lunch meat at them and stuff like that. I just couldn't make the jump in high school. But I was also an avid environmentalist. I was the president of the school's environmental club. I was partially responsible for the recycling program starting in my school district. And I remember going to an arts festival and seeing a t-shirt. I so wish I could remember it exactly. But it talked about the environmental impact of eating meat. Now, we're talking back in like 1992, I saw this. I knew then that as soon as I was away from my high school, I was going to go vegetarian. I, at that moment, I had never heard the word vegan. That wouldn't come for about another year and a half. So I graduated high school. I, I went about my business. I went to college and I got really sick. And a diagnosis didn't come immediately, but I have a, an autoimmune disorder called ulcerative colitis. So if anybody listening knows what that is, it's a kind of like disgusting, horrible, gross GI disorder. To keep it short and not too disgusting, basically what happens is in your large intestine, Bleeding ulcers form, and the actual organ itself starts to swell shut. It is excruciatingly painful, and there's no cure. I was diagnosed with this at age 20. 
Um, but I had already been sick for about six to seven months. I remember sitting in a doctor's office and um, <laughs> he he was the strangest man. Uh, his office was full of photos of himself and dead plants. And I remember walking out and telling my mom, I don't think he can help me. And she was confounded. She's like, he's the only gastroenterologist in town. I said, yeah, but he can't even keep a plant alive. How is he going to help me? And um, his immediate uh, reaction was, well, we'll just remove your colon and everything will be fine. And um, we now know that that's a last resort. And I said, no, I'm not going to let you remove my colon. That's that. <laughs> and so he's like, well, you could try going to a nutritionist. Maybe it would help. So I did go to a nutritionist and it was um, a life changing. <laughs> it was a life changing appointment. I wish I could remember her name. Um, I could still see her face. She said that the night before she had finished reading a book by a Dr. John McDougall. He is one of the famous vegan doctors. Everybody knows him now because he's been in the bazillion movies. But at the time, it was a pretty obscure thing. She said, I just finished reading this book by this Dr. John McDougall. And he recommends this, what she called extreme vegetarian diet. It was a vegan diet. And it was what we now call an SO a version of the SOS diet, no salt, sugar, oil. And um, his was also very carb heavy. And uh, she said, you know what? He has a huge chapter on research. He's done with this diet with ulcerative colitis. She's like, you're really sick. It couldn't hurt. Give it a try. And so I, I did. I, I had to order the book. There was no Amazon back then. Um, there were no e-readers. <laughs> I had to go to the local bookstore and order it and wait a week for it to arrive. I read it in one day. And that very same day, I went vegan. And I have never looked back. Wow. That was 26 years ago, January 26 years ago, actually. I was just about to and say, you just had your veganversary. I did. I did. And um, I was well within seven months. I don't want to give the impression that I've never had another flare-up of ulcerative colitis. I have. It, it is an autoimmune condition. And when other things hit my immune system, I can still get sick. Things like I've had pneumonia twice. And both bouts of pneumonia led to another bout of colitis. But for the most part, uh, doctors who look at me are like, how can you possibly have colitis? You don't look sick. You don't look like a colitis patient. You don't take any prescriptions. And I don't because I don't need to. A, a healthy, well-rounded vegan diet with plenty of fiber and vegetables. And also I'm a big fan of um, botanical medicine like herbalism have kept me well and alive. That first doctor, the one with all the dead plants, looked me right in the eye and said I wouldn't live to see my 30th birthday. And mm. I'm 45. Wow. <laughs> so that's that's my vegan journey. I I came I always wanted to be a vegetarian and it worked out that it was my fate to be a vegan and I have been so happy with the choice for every reason and as a bonus I'm still alive. <laughs> wow, that's an incredible story. Yeah, everything else I had in mind seems very contrived <laughs> and insignificant <laughs> compared to that story, but thank you so much for sharing. Yeah. Sure. You know, I actually got to tell that story. Um, I was interviewed for a documentary that um, PBS was making. And um, I guess this was maybe about five years ago. And it was going to be another one of those, you know, <laughs> big plant-based medical things. And in the end, I don't think it ever got made or it just didn't get distributed. Who knows? Sitting on a shelf somewhere, probably. But it was really cool to get to tell that story and to think that maybe someday... <laughs> Other people with ulcerative colitis will hear that story somehow and have hope for themselves because a lot of medical doctors will tell you 
when you have autoimmune disorder that what you need is more pharmaceuticals and that your diet doesn't matter. And I'm living proof that that is simply not true. And they just simply don't know. They're not informed. I don't blame them. I have compassion for them. They, they are coming from where they are. And I think that's a big part of being a vegan is meeting people where they are and understanding that we all start at a different place. But yeah, I, <laughs> I wanted to be a vegetarian because I loved animals and I love the environment. And I ended up being a vegan convert overnight for, to save my own life, basically. That's so interesting because a lot of times it's the other way around where people become vegetarian for health reasons and they become vegan for ethical reasons. You sounds like you want to be vegetarian for ethical reasons and then you became <laughs> vegan for health reasons. So you really flipped that on its head. <laughs> I did. But, you know, however, however people arrive works for me, you know? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So I'm, I'm not one of those people that if you don't do it for this reason, it's not good enough. Right. If you if you save an animal's life for any reason, it's good enough for me. Definitely. <laughs> and speaking of helping people get there, you do a lot of work with your vegetarian journal and other writing or artist work you do. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. Um, I'll tell you a little bit about the journal, and then I could tell you a little bit about my own personal work. So the journal is published quarterly, and if you are environmentally minded, you can get it on Kindle or a PDF subscription. Um, we do still print paper copies, and it distributes um, about 200,000 copies, so it's considered a small magazine. It's really cool because we don't take any advertising. So the content of the magazine is completely the vision of myself and the managing editor. We aren't you know, beholden to anybody to write anything in particular. So we have a fabulous scientist um, who writes for us named Reed Mangles. She is a uh, PhD in nutrition, and she can break down all these amazing scientific updates for the journal. Um, we always run recipe pieces, and I've really retooled the recipe pieces both to reflect diversity um, in the chefs that I'm, you know, presenting, as well as I try to pick recipes that um, anybody could make. I don't want people to have to own a Vitamix, for example, to make our recipes. I want anyone to be able to enjoy vegan food and not have it be simply people who have, you know, gourmet kitchens. Yeah, the changes that have come to the journal since I started are exciting and I hope make it more accessible and, what do I want to say, more accessible and exciting for people who pick up the magazine. As far as my own personal work, <laughs> so I am a writer and artist as well, and um, I spent many years as a photographer. I have donated photography services many times to even animal advocates, as well as sanctuaries and other vegan groups for their events. As far as writing, <laughs> so I'm a poet and playwright and I write fiction and I have written many poems with a vegan theme. If you have time at the end, I could read you one. That'd be great. And um, actually, you know, I ended the perfect one because it was written and dedicated to some sheep at Lancaster Farm Sanctuary. <laughs> who, who doesn't love those sheep at Lancaster Farm Sanctuary? <laughs> so yeah, I, I actually would say I subtly put vegan messaging in all of my work, uh, basically messages of compassion and understanding, trying to make that feel like a more natural way of thinking when people are consuming my writing. Something that I think is interesting to me anyway is how you pick what kind of content you put in your publications or even just how you frame certain issues. As someone like you who approaches veganism and vegetarianism from the health and ethical lens and probably many other lenses you haven't mentioned yet, 
how do you go about deciding how you're going to portray certain topics or issues or veganism as a whole? Well, the folks who run the vegetarian resource group are science-based. So um, a lot of our foundation at the magazine comes from their roots and they don't want to like they, they put opinion pieces in, but we also try to really fairly look at everything from a non-biased and scientific point of view as well. Sometimes that like we just recently ran a piece on uh, written by a, an attorney, uh, a vegan attorney on can, is it going to be possible for vegans in prison to get vegan food? And um, he was able to break it down by, you know, precedents and other cases that, um, you know, it, it should be possible. It doesn't mean it is. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. And then we also we try to put articles together that could reach people who are, you know, much younger, uh, college or high school age, make veganism and even vegetarianism seem realistic for them while still living with their families who may or may not be on board give them tools like how do you talk to your parents how do you talk to your siblings how do you talk to your friend group about a big change like that so as far as making these selections we we try to look at the broad spectrum of people in general and figure out how can we best put the idea out there that veganism and vegetarianism is is accessible it is a positive thing and it has a lot of benefits for everyone. Yeah, that sounds really great way to come at it. And I do also really appreciate the fact you're not based on advertising or things like that. Because a lot of times when I'm browsing vegan news sites, things get very, for lack of a better term, clickbaity with their titles. Even if it's not a mm -hmm. website, it's mm -hmm. go vegan to reduce these four signs of heart disease or things like that. And Right. It really feels like it cheapens the lifestyle as a whole and makes it more of a gimmick or a trick you know, or something like that. And I like understand that. that, you know, bloggers and, and things, the people need to make a living. I get it. You know, I mean, people need to make a living and it takes time and money to come up with recipes and take beautiful photographs. And I understand how, how it can be to run a website or newsletter. I mean, definitely since, you know, I... <laughs> I'm the senior editor of a magazine. So, um, and I've also developed recipes for blogs and um, even vegan food companies as well. All of that said, you're right. It, when things become clickbaity, it, it definitely makes it feel less authentic. And it, there's that feeling of like, is this for real? Or is this also like that p the thing like pills to make you skinny in five days? Like what the is that? Right. Oh, was I not supposed to swear? I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, it's fine. <laughs> you're good. <laughs> <laughs> sorry about that <laughs> good and something else with vegans is we like to debate and every vegan has a different opinion on basically everything so what are some yes. stories or topics you've covered in your work this magazine or otherwise that have produced a especially negative or positive reaction from vegans <laughs> so in addition to working in the magazine for many years, I ran and still run an organization called Baltimore Vegan Drinks. Mm. And um, there were times that I ran it uh, with others, and there now I run it alone. Um, I do have one volunteer who helps me out. He's great, named Brian. But <laughs> I have encountered more <laughs> debate with other vegans and vegetarians and veg-curious people 
about the strangest things. And I always try to maintain both composure and compassion when I approach anyone. Like I said, I believe in meeting people where they are. And not everybody and I are standing in the same place looking at the same thing. What's that, um, what did, was it Thoreau that said it's not what you look at, it's what you see? So from that point of view, I, I always try to be patient and listen. And I've had I've heard every complaint from, you know, you shouldn't hold vegan drinks at places that aren't all vegan. And I could make an argument for that both ways to you shouldn't hold vegan drinks in places there's going to be a line for the bathroom. So, you know, <laughs> OK, <laughs> I feel like one of the most important things that vegans can do if they're in a position to do so is to support veganism with their dollars. If you are supporting any small business out there that is offering vegan options, whether it is a place that only has one or a place that is 100% vegan, you are still putting your money into the vegan cause. Ultimately, this is what makes big companies make decisions that can change everything. So when there's more demand for plant-based foods of any kind, then that means there's less demand for animal-based foods. And of course, right now we're in a pandemic and everything is off and it feels weird to even talk about spending money on eating out. Um, vegan drinks now has turned into a carryout night. Um, basically, we instead of meeting to have a social time, we have planned a carryout night in one place and ask people like on this night, order carryout from XYZ place. And they put out some specials for us. But I still wanted to use the influence of vegan drinks to put that out. Now, as far as people arguing, <laughs> they still argue about that. Um, it's not responsible to do a carryout night and encourage people to go out. Well, you know what? Don't go. That's fine. It's fine. And I, you know, I still would encourage people to, when they buy their regular groceries, like, you know, support some of these companies, like if you can, if it's in your budget. I know that uh, there's a lot of debate about companies like Beyond and Hampton Creek, or I guess they're just just now. Um, however, they have made major changes. And to deny that is to kind of stick your head in the sand. And I've been vegan for 26 years. <laughs> I could tell you in the beginning that um, the vegan cheese we used to have is nothing like what's available now. <laughs> if, no. if you could find it. It was kind of like chewing on an eraser before. Yep. <laughs> um, <laughs> and when people were like, oh, Daya doesn't taste like real, real thing, like, well, first of all, it's real. It exists in this plane of, of reality. <laughs> right. It's not like, you know, in the fourth dimension or anything. Um, <laughs> it always it drives me nuts. People are like, it's not real. I'm like, it is. It, look, you're holding it in your hand. It's real. <laughs> I would have died for Daya yeah. <laughs> 26 years ago. And it, it was a game changer for so many people when it came out. And yeah, things have come along now like Vio Life cheeses and Parmela that are better. I agree. That doesn't take anything away from Daya. You know, it doesn't take anything away from the companies that came first and made the way for others. And I feel like what a lot of vegans miss when they're being, what's the word, discriminating with their tastes and foods is that everything has to start somewhere. And to complain about what you have is kind of ungrateful. And I, having been vegan so long, I remember when I had to make my own bread because all the breads in the grocery store had egg wash. Yep. That was the fashionable thing. So I had to learn to make my own damn bread. Every week I made a loaf of bread. Um, let me tell you, <laughs> some of them sucked. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I feel like I'm going on and on. Um, <laughs> please stop me and, and, and tell me how you would like me to direct next. 
<laughs> All right, no pressure, Joe. But uh, so <laughs> the game I like to play whenever people confront me about certain things, whether it's you know spending money at the vegan business doesn't really matter because of government subsidies, or you realize Beyond Impossible also tests on animals or mm-hmm. things like that is. What's the alternative? So if the alternative is I spend my money somewhere else, Beyond and Impossible are still testing on animals and they're still going to be putting stuff out there and it doesn't help anyone if we don't support these uh, essentially non-vegan businesses because of certain aspects just because they don't align 100% with our values. Because we're never going to find someone that aligns 100%. The best we can do is find a sustainable outlet for our activism and energy resources that aligns Mm -hmm. as best we can, that can be a part of our everyday existence, and thereby part of everyone's everyday existence. Right. That's just how I look at whenever people confront me about things like that. But you also organize several events down in Baltimore, correct? Um, yeah, several big events. I've been um, part of part of organizing festivals and the Mac and Cheese Smackdown as well. That became a national event and outgrew Baltimore. <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit more about how you got started with the Mac and Cheese Smackdown and how it grew and what surprises came from it? Everything about it was a surprise. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't a new idea. I mean, there are ma- um, non-vegan Mac and Cheese competitions that have been around for ages. And the idea to do one was kind of like, let's let's bring this back and make it all vegan. And it would be a fundraiser for a local a local group. They now go by the name of Greener Kitchen. And their their mission is to make plant based foods affordable to marginalized communities. So it was a fantastic, fantastic mission. We thought maybe three, 300 to 500 people might show up that first year. We were wrong. (laughs) people were lined up down the block (laughs) we were definitely in violation of the fire code and a lot of the contestants ran out of food um we got major news coverage in the area by the second year we had moved to the, the largest possible venue in baltimore besides the convention center and we couldn't go there because you can't bring food in right so we were we maxed out our size on the second year, <laughs> and again the capacity we surpassed the capacity. We had it there another year, and that was the last one because we couldn't keep up with the demand. Nobody expected that. Um, we had coverage from Veg News, Washington Post. It was fantastic, and most of the people there weren't vegan. <laughs> there wow. were people traveling from Chicago, Philadelphia, New York to come and attend and eat the food. And the coverage was really just incredible. But at the end of the day, uh, we couldn't safely <laughs> continue. <laughs> and also because it was all done for charity, none of us made money doing it. So we were having to take out huge amounts of time from work. And it just wasn't sustainable. So that said, I am so proud of that work. I'm proud of that. I'm proud of the vegan street festivals. I I think any kind of outreach like that is well, when you're not in a pandemic, <laughs> is incredibly effective um, because it, it makes it fun. Like, who doesn't want to go eat mac and cheese? It's fun. <laughs> and, like, who doesn't want to walk around a street festival? It's fun. So those kinds of outreach have been really successful and not pushy. And I've, I've had so much uh, <laughs> satisfaction being part of them. So 
Did I answer your question? Yeah. Uh, well, okay. We're... I was like, or am I just going on and on? <laughs> no, I feel we need to have you back on because we're already coming up on half an hour and there's so much I want to talk about. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> before we go, I have a, aside from having you read one of your poems, which will be amazing, as someone who's been vegan for over 26 years now, what is something that you feel vegans should be pushing more for, something we as a movement could be doing better? Well, you know, I I have a lot of people in my life who aren't vegan, and I never, I am never the one who brings it up. If they ask, I tell them I'm vegan, or I politely refuse to eat the, you know, milk chocolate bar they offer me, or whatever. I but I don't push. And I have found that more people are interested and more people want questions for me. And even so people actually move into a meatless Monday or even vegetarian or veganism because I don't push. And I know that sounds counterintuitive. You know, I think something as subtle as just wearing a hat that says vegan on it is enough. At least it has been in my experience. Now, I don't have the model where (laughs) I don't prescribe to the model that if the harder you push, the louder you shout, people will hear you. I mean, think about it. Like, the louder somebody shouts at you, do you want to listen to them or do they start to annoy you? I can't only speak for myself, but I, I start to shut down when somebody's pushing on me. And I feel like a lot of other people are that way, too. And it's been my experience as a vegan activist that if you let someone come to you, they are much more likely to be open. The ways I do this, I wear clothes that say vegan. I try to present myself as a healthy, positive, you know, outgoing person who has warmth and is not going to shove my views down your throat. And I present people with good food. It just happens to be vegan. And um, when people say, isn't vegan food weird? I say, do you eat apples? Do you like bananas? You know, like... I try to make it familiar and um, easy and not give the uh, <laughs> impression that you have to be angry to be a vegan. Um, it really bothers me a lot of times when I watch TV shows and <laughs> they're like, oh, you know, somebody killed this scientist because they're an angry vegan. And I'm like, no, we don't do that. Like, <laughs> I don't know anybody who does that. I've even been the vegan who's like gone into situations as an undercover photographer and been like booted out. But you know what? (laughs) It's sort of like this. It's like you can't make someone do anything. It's just not a thing. And if you want to be an effective activist, you have to figure out a way to engage people that they don't feel like you are threatening their way of seeing the world. And if you can do that, and if you can be authentic and really feel it, then you will be a lot more successful than pushing or shouting in any way ever. And um, I mean, it could be something as simple as having like an attractive pamphlet to hand out to just wearing a smile on your face when you talked about when you talk to someone about it, instead of like being like, you have to go vegan. The earth is dying. Like, yeah, everybody knows (laughs) the earth is dying. But if you make someone personally responsible, you've created a villain and nobody wants to be the villain. Everybody wants to be the hero. So absolutely. You just touched on two things that have come up time and time again on this podcast is the best way to make vegans is to be around other awesome people who happen to be vegan and eat awesome food that happens to be vegan. So, Yes. 
<laughs> doing all the right things from what we've heard. And I did a little research and the vegan equivalent of you catch more flies with honey is you befriend more flies with molasses oh, is yeah. the phrase. <laughs> <laughs> Because last week we had a guest on and we constantly kept saying that phrase and we were kicking ourselves every time. We're like, oh, what are it's, we doing? It's true. It's true. <laughs> Before we close out with a poem, uh, how can pe- our listeners get a hold of you if they want to ask more or learn more about your work? Um, well, they can reach me through my work as the Vegetarian Resource Group. My email is rissa at vrg.org. It's R-I-S-S-A at vrg.org cool awesome if you want to get a hold of john or i or anyone else on the be kind podcast team if you want to get a hold of me or john anyone <laughs> else on the podcast team <laughs> uh, you can email us at be kind podcast at gmail.com gotta have those subject and object pronouns right <laughs> um, so rissa can you close us out with a reading of your poem i would love to this poem is called shepherdess and it was written at, it was written after a day spent literally shoveling shit at Lancaster Farm Sanctuary. And um, I would tell anybody that if you ever have the chance to go volunteer at Lancaster Farm Sanctuary or any other sanctuary, even if you spend all day shoveling shit, you should do it. Having the close, intimate relationship with those animals is kind of one of the most profound experiences. And it's one of, I think, three or four sanctuaries I volunteered at in the course of my years being vegan. Each one is different. Each one has their own personality. And of course, each one is filled with unique animals that aren't going to be like the animals at any other sanctuary. So this poem is called Shepherdess, and it is dedicated to Gertrude, Patrick, and Abby. Sleepless, some people imagine a row of round, woolly bodies prancing over neat board fences. They stride on small hooves, herding humans towards slumber. But ask yourself, what's in it for the sheep? Parade of neutral mundane, their masks of black or honey brown, cued nose to tail. Why wouldn't sheep prefer to press a soft muzzle to your cheek? Nod in contentment as clouds linger across the moon. Sheep, no faces. They see you feelingly. They wouldn't bypass a friend to patter one by one till dawn when they could choose to engulf you in fuzzy nose kisses. Not everyone can be a shepherdess. You must allow a break in the procession, protect them with each wiggly wag of their tails. Sheep need rest too. How lucky at twilight when the sheep sniff your skin, their nostrils a cozy tickle. They huddle close in the lush fields of your heart curled shoulder to hawk in the straw. Weave your fingers in fleece, ease into their gentle bleating as you drift over worn fences through the open gate of dusk.